Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Sheep Thrills. My name is Emily Lamb. Happy Monday night. Uh, very happy to be here live in WRGW studio. Um, it's a very exciting day. We've got a lot going on. It two, bi- two big things going on today before we get into the show. One, election day is tomorrow. Uh, it, is, it is officially election day eve, so that's a pretty big deal. Got elections going on tomorrow. We're going to talk about the results next week. It's going to be a whole lot of fun. Um, <laughs> we'll see how late we're all up tomorrow night watching those results come in. We'll see if we even get all the results tomorrow. But anyway, if you live in Virginia, if you live in New Jersey, if you live in any of those big states, make sure you are getting out and you are um, voting tomorrow if you haven't done so already. And then other than that, this is has nothing to do with politics, but it does have to do with something fun. It's my birthday today, guys. This is my birthday show, and I am spending it here with you guys talking about <laughs> talking about politics, and I'm very glad to be doing it. So um, with that, what, what are we going to talk about today? Um, so the, the Build Back Better plan, a whole lot has happened in the last week with it. Um, my intern, Preston, put together a really great analysis of the plan uh, as it stands now. So we're going to go with, go through that. That's going to be the first thing we talk about. We're going to talk about then how the plan got to where it is today and what its fate looks like at this point in time. Um, and then we're going to we're going to talk more about um, climate. Um, like I said, last week, Biden actually was at um, a climate summit this past weekend. He's at another one this week. He's, so he's in Europe. Um, and so we're going to talk about what's coming out of that, what it means. And we're going to talk about whether any like real substantive climate action is actually going to um, come away from come away from this. So We'll see how it goes. Fingers crossed um, that that's all good. And then, of course, we're going to get into some fun stories from this week. And of course, it was Halloween last week on the Hill. Um, So there's there's quite a lot (laughs) to talk about in terms of how our, you know, duly elected officials spent their Halloween. So with that, I, so Preston, unfortunately, my intern couldn't make it in today um, to um, share his story with us live, but he did, he, he recorded a section. So we're going to see if this technology works, fingers crossed. Um, but with that, I'm going to share with you, um, and this is going to be Preston for the next couple of minutes. That is, if I can get it to play. Let's see. Okay, there we go. Nope, never mind, it's not working. Okay, we're going to give it another try. (laughs) We are attempting things with the technology. Here we go. Maybe this one will work. (laughs) Nope, not that either. Okay. Well, in that case... We are just going to skip this until the end when I can try to figure it out. And he will, instead of uh, starting us off, he's going to conclude our our show today. Um, (laughs) Regardless of that, I probably should have tested this before we went on air, but that's my own fault. My bad. Um, Anyway, so we're going to we'll get back towards the end of the show about kind of what the plan actually includes, what's in it, what's going on with all of it. But. Let's just get in right now to where the package is now. So the quote-unquote final bill language has finally been released. It is H.R. 5376, the Build Back Better Act. So we're finally, we're here, we're building back better. Very exciting. Um, And as we discussed, uh, there was like a lot of weeks of drama and debate. We've talked about it for the past several weeks. Um, It has not been a... uh, you know, an, an underground subject. It has very much <laughs> uh, been at the forefront of our, all of our attentions over the last over the last several weeks. Um, but of course, the, this final framework did end up getting released um, and has a lot in it. Although Joe Biden did say that, quote, um, he not everyone got everything they wanted, including me. So as as we assumed was going to happen, the progressives are unhappy. The moderates are unhappy. The Republicans are unhappy because the Republicans are always going to be unhappy with things like this. It is just kind of the, the way it is. Um, so 
no one, yeah, no, no one is happy. And there was a lot of uh, closed door meetings and conversations over the last week. Uh, and, the, you know, the, the main sticking point, as we talked about last week, was uh, getting the progressives on board with the package. Um, they had to create some kind of plan that was going to get the entire um, House Progressive Caucus on board, uh, plus the package that was going to get the moderates in the Senate, i.e. Manchin and Cinema, on board. Uh, although it is interesting that there hasn't been that much pushing to get the um, moderates in the House on board. They're pretty much on board with whatever, um, which is, well, they're not on board with anything at all. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be having a very different conversation. But the moderates that we're trying to woo really are uh, cinema and mansion. So there was another quote that, that came out that, quote, Hill progressives appear ready to swallow this deal. So they are very much just on board with this, this program that they are... Um, that they have come up with. So um, so the Build Back Better Act, so it's kind of now a different name. It's even more complicated than it was before. So now this is actually the um, the reconciliation bill. So we talked about this in the last couple of weeks, um, uh, like what reconciliation is and how it comes about. But this is basically just an overarching bill on reconciliation. Um, so... Um, it's the same situation as before. The, the, the House progressives are not going to um, vote for the infrastructure bill without reconciliation. Um, and actually, um, AOC had a really interesting thread comparing the two bills uh, and explaining why they need to be linked, right? Like why when one can't be used without the other if we actually want, you know, the, this, this kind of policy change to happen. Um, and I'm just going to read read a quote here. It says, you know, she, she tweeted, and of course, all of my links on social media tomorrow. You guys, have, if you if you're frequent listeners, you'll have heard me say that many times. Um, but it's just, you know, we can't say, oh, there's X million for this. Does X million get it done? Or is it a half? Is it half a bridge? How many times has legislation been rushed just for people to be resentful at details later? Uh, which I think is a really important point. Again, this is this is a side note, but it is one of my favorite things about AOC. Beyond politics and her her positioning on different issues, um, I just think that she's a she's a very authentic politician in that she acknowledges the fact that you know it's hard um, to really comprehend. All the different all the different things that are going on with with politics um, it is um, you know it's difficult to understand and 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 to consume oh this is a four thousand page bill that we're gonna have to vote on next week and we get assigned a lot of reading at the George Washington University but I don't think that anyone can do like four thousand pages of reading um, in you know, in in, a, in only a couple days and really comprehend it and really understand the implications of all of it. Um, and of course, like that's that's our that's the job of our elected officials is to, you know, read that whole bill and make that decision and kind of uh, uh, translate it for us as um, as just consumers of politics. Uh, and I'm you know, I'm because I'm the craziest person around in many <laughs> political situations. But even I'm not crazy enough to sit down and and read this whole bill, and it is something that we kind of expect politicians to do, and we don't know. Are politicians doing it? Are we just kind of feeding, like, you know, getting the sound bites and feeding into the sound bites? I don't know um, if we really are um, kind of getting the whole story. And so I think that AOC being honest about that and saying, look, you, you, you've heard the sound bites, you've heard kind of what's going on, but you don't know all the details, and frankly, neither do I. Um, and I think that's a pretty powerful way to communicate politics. Again, kind of a side note, but I think um, pretty important for the understanding of the, the the legislation. And so, you know, something we've talked about a lot and we're going to talk about uh, later on in the show is climate and how important climate is for this bill. And it's because it's in the infrastructure bill and it's in the Build Back Better bill. Um, so we, we need to understand kind of what's going on in both bills to kind of understand what's going on. Um, so, you know, there's there's various provisions in the infrastructure bill that kind of are like a half step towards um, actual climate action, and then the other half, um, and then in the in, in the Build Back Better bill, Build Back Better Act, <laughs> bill? I'm not, Build Back Better Act, yes, excuse me. Um, there's, there's stuff that goes a lot further. Right. So if you're not pairing the two bills together, if you're just getting a vote on infrastructure, you're actually not going to get the kind of substantive um, climate action you're going to get with both bills together. Um, and I think that's kind of like a little 
political trick, obviously, because uh, it's, a, it's a lot easier to get bipartisan support on a bill that isn't, um, that doesn't have a sweeping of action. But again, if you get both bills together, which again, reconciliation can't be filibustered, and the infrastructure bill um, passed through the Senate with more than 60 votes, again, it's just like a political tool for them to be able to get everything they want. Um, so I think that's that's very important, right? These two bills, progressives do say they need to go together. If they don't go together, we're not going to get what we want. Um, and so I do think that that's pretty considerable um, in that sense. The other main provision, the other kind of big sticking point in terms of um, uh, the Build Back Better Act is, um, which of course is still being amended, it's still being debated. The final bill language has come out at this point, but now it needs to obviously, I think, I don't know if it's come out of committee yet or if it still needs to go into committee. I know that it's sponsored by um, Yarmouth of um, Kentucky, who I believe is retiring after this term and he's the budget chairman. So that's kind of, that's just like an, another interesting side note that this budget process, I think literally knocked him out. He's like, I simply refuse to um, do another round of budget negotiations. I'm going to retire now. Um, his seat also might get redistricted out. We don't know what's going on in Kentucky, but anyway, the the but the other major provision that um, is kind of that got pulled out during negotiations, um, but may or may not be going back in depending on debate. It probably will, is my opinion, but regardless, um, is um, paid family leave. And initially in the bill, it was again it was initially in the bill. It got removed during negotiations, and it's a major provision that a lot of female senators specifically are fighting for. So um, there's a picture I posted on Twitter a while ago um, of uh, Senators Gillibrand, uh, Warren, and Duckworth, I think, all basically surrounding Joe Manchin on the Senate floor, and apparently they were yelling at him about um, paid family leave, which I love. I I love I love. Uh, gangs of female senators yelling at Joe Manchin. It's one of my favorite things in the world, actually. Um, so the original proposal in the bill was 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave, which was then whittled down to four weeks, which is like nothing. And then it was eliminated altogether. And uh, kind of interestingly, in comparison, the U.S. is only is one of only six countries that any form of national paid leave, and then it's one of eight without any form of national maternity leave. And the global average is 29 weeks. So the fact that the original proposal was 12 and then it got pushed down to four is honestly hilarious. And it kind of goes to um, something I think about a lot in terms of um, kind of the United States being like, quote unquote, leaders of the free world and how they're kind of not really um like there's a lot of um i feel like i've talked to, i don't know if i've talked about this on the show before um or if i've talked about this just in classes so many times that i'm forgetting um but there's so many un treaties that uh the united states hasn't ratified because of issues with sovereignty and whatnot but like you know the the convention on eliminating discrimination against women like that that seems like a good thing that everyone should want to ratify but uh the like a very there's like a handful of countries that still haven't ratified. It's like the United States and like Yemen and Yemen is not in a place to be ratifying treaties right now. Um, but anyway, so it just kind of goes to show that like the, the maybe our, our political system isn't the most responsive to like current democratic ideas. But again, regardless and kind of a tangent. Um, but the the interesting thing here, I think, is that with the Build Back Better Act, there actually is some pretty considerable climate provisions. It's obviously not as sweeping as a lot of activists and progressives wanted it to be, but it's still, it's pretty good. Um, they did get through like a lot of like the corporate tax credits and stuff like that, um, that they were really pushing Mansion for. Um, and so I think they, they probably had to, the people who are negotiating had to prioritize and say like, okay, we've got the, we've got climate activists and we've got women's groups. Which which one do we prioritize and which one do we need more um, in a, in the in the next couple of elections? And I think what they're the, the the political calculus there, I think, is that they decided that they needed well, a they needed climate going into the climate summit. They needed um, there to be again something substantial for Biden to stand on and say, look, this is what we are doing. Um, and then I think they. They also know like women's groups are not going to abandon them in a general election. They're going to stick generally stick with the Democratic Party. But I think that they see that climate activists are generally again, I'm not you know saying for sure, but uh, generally progressives are a lot more or um, 
climate activists are a lot more progressive. And I think they're more likely, if they don't get what they want, to jump to a um, third party, jump to a Green Party candidate or something like that. Um, they're, yeah, they're far more likely to kind of abandon ship and um, go go with somebody else that ultimately split the Democratic vote because they do want a more progressive, um, more progressive candidate. So I don't know necessarily if they made the right decision or the wrong decision, but they certainly did some some political calculus and said like we need uh, the we need clout at this moment in terms of climate. We need to uh, appease these groups that are going to abandon us, and so they did prioritize climate over issues of family leave. I think it was one of those things where Manchin said you could have this or you could have this. And uh, they probably also knew that uh, issues of family leave, it has like a, it has a 69% approval rating for a federal paid leave policy. So I think they knew, all right, well, if it's got a 69% approval rating, we could probably squeeze it in during negotiation or during like the actual um, amending of the bill. And there's enough um, politicians who are really going to support it and, and speak out about it. So I think they said, all right, well, we're going to be able to squeeze it in afterwards anyway without Manchin's approval, and then maybe we'll get everything we want in the end. Maybe maybe our, our socialist wish list will come true, um, to quote all of, all of those lovely, lovely Glenn Youngkin ads. Um, so, and, and then, then, of course, there is the old adage, of course, you know, with, with the neglect of women's groups, it kind of if if my analysis of their political calculus is correct, which I don't know, it could be, it could not be. I don't know what's going on behind those the, in those closed door meetings, um, but it, it it does kind of strike me as um, the Democratic Party doing what they always do, which is abandoning groups that are like the most loyal to them. Um, there's there's a lot of talk about um, a lot of uh, Black people I know saying like the Democratic Party just like takes advantage of black voters and they know that the black voters are going to always vote for them, but they're never going to do anything for us. I think that's pretty important. I think they're, they're also kind of taking advantage of women's groups in the situation, kind of bargaining away um, those, those women's issues. Not that they're only women's issues, of course, because we know mayor, former mayor, secretary Pete is, uh, was on um, paternity leave when he had his, um, his new babies, who, by the way, dressed up as traffic cones for Halloween, which is so cute. Um, so, of course, we know that it's not only a women's issue, but again, generalizing um, family leave is something that a lot of women's groups and, and women senators and, and women representatives are, are, are fighting for most stringently. So I am generalizing, blah, blah, blah. But I'm just saying um, that this is generally seen as an issue prioritized by women's groups. So I, I don't know if it's it is the Democratic Party kind of taking advantage of um, those women's groups and those people that are going to kind of maintain, be loyal to them from here on out. But it is what it is, and it's kind of going to stay the same. And if men were the ones giving birth, if they were having children, if they were <laughs> actively the ones who were pregnant and giving birth, things would be very different, um, and it would not be as difficult to get kind of like the basic needs that we need <laughs> as women after we give birth. But anyway, um, so the reconciliation in the form of the Build Back Better plan, it's it's most like, it's, I mean, it's certainly going to pass the House. That's kind of a foregone conclusion. Now that the progressives are, are on board, they're def it's definitely going to pass. The infrastructure plan is also most likely um, going to pass the House now that they're going to get a vote on both at the same time and now that the progressives are happy with the, the um, Build Back Better Act that everything's going to kind of pass along the house. Um, but not in time for Virginia or New Jersey. It is just, it's not enough time for them to get the vote through. They're probably not going to even do it until Thursday, which of course, as we know, election day is tomorrow. Um, so we just don't, we don't have enough time to, um, uh, like get that, get that bill through. Now, the next question is, is Build Back Better going to pass through the Senate? And this is a more complicated question. So, um, when Biden was asked, I think yesterday, maybe the day before, um, he was asked just during like a press conference, it's just like a shouted question, um, if he had Cinema and Manton's approval of this version of the bill, he responded with a thumbs up. So you kind of consider that a yes. And then Manchin um, made a statement today on the Senate floor, basically saying like, I am not going to support the bill unless I can show that it's like budget neutral, which it is, but that's kind of beside the point. And he kind of went through a, a whole bunch of things um, 
about like if he you know all these like random um things about like oh he's not going to support the bill unless like it helps the american people what what does that mean joe manchin what does that mean senator manchin um and then right after he made that statement that was like a couple hours ago today um right after he made that statement um jen Psaki, the press secretary made a statement basically saying that yeah we do have mansion and cinema on board we we this bill fulfills all of their requirements blah 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 um so it's it's marginally unclear whether or not uh, mansion is actually supporting the bill the white house certainly seems to think that they are but i am not as convinced i also again we talked we've talked we've talked about this for many many weeks joe mansion loves the attention he loves to have people look at him and talk about him and be like, wow, he certainly has, uh, he certainly is an interesting dude and he's got a lot going on in his life. Um, so I think that this just might be kind of part of his play to just continue to be in the headlines because if he just says, yes, I support the bill, he's in the headlines for three hours. But if he says, I don't know, maybe I do, maybe I don't, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a riddle and then all of the reporters have to decode the riddle and then that's how you'll know if I support the bill or not, um, that keeps him in the news for a lot longer. Um, and we don't know too much about cinema, but I think we can say wherever Mansion goes, cinema will follow at this point. Um, and then there's, there's, there's the main kind of takeaway from this, which is uh, assuming that this bill passes the House, passes the Senate, is the package enough to dispel all of the, you know, Dems and disarray talk? We have midterms in, in a year, a year as of tomorrow-ish, give or take a couple days. Um, So is it going to be enough to say, look at this massive package that the Democrats passed. That's great. That's amazing. Wow. The Dems are not in disarray. The Dems have it all together. They know exactly what they're doing. Um, I don't think so. I think that the process stories for this bill were, were such a long period of time, like at least a month, maybe two, of just process stories um, that the just the process of 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 getting to the final bill everybody got so dirty so muddy um that it's just not it's not going to look as clean and shiny as they want because we kind of unfortunately saw how the sausage got made a little bit um it's also it's i think that the the impact of the bill is going to kind of fade away a little bit i think like i talked about earlier it's kind of a consequence of not knowing exactly what's on the bill and it kind of being ambiguous as to what ultimately got included, because we're talking about so many different provisions, we're talking about so many different ideas um, that we just don't know, um, unfortunately, what what's what's in the final bill, how much is given to what, and who um, is actually going to be helped. Um, and I, the the other important thing, kind of thinking forward to twenty twenty four, this is the centerpiece of the Biden administration. This is his central piece of what he he wanted to do in this administration. Um, And there's just so much baggage associated with it now that I don't think it's going to do what it needs to do. It's going to be this like glittering accomplishment. And I just don't necessarily think um, that it is. I think that like he's going to get it done. It's going to get through. It's just not going to be as as pretty and shining and beautiful as as he wanted it to be. Um, And then the the, 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 of course, the main crux of this, the main question is um, how long are voters memories? Are they going to remember all of the mud and all of the nonsense that happened over the last two months? Or are they going to remember, oh, I got money in my bank account or I got some kind of um, assistance from the federal government. That's great. I love the Democrats. They did this for me. They did that for me. Um, so it's it's going to be very interesting. Of course, I talked about this last week when I was, or two weeks ago when I was talking about Virginia. But the, the memory of the, the reconciliation process is very different. Uh, for elections that are happening tomorrow than elections that are going to happen a year from now. Um, but I do think that it's not going to play necessarily the way that the Democrats want it to. And I think that that midterm slump is going to be bad for the Democrats, but we will we will certainly see how it goes. Um, but moving on from that, um, and of course, as I say every week, I think the final vote in the in the house is going to be this week um so once that happens we'll have a lot to talk about next week um so the other thing i want to talk about this week is um the g20 and some climate updates so like we talked about uh last week climate is a major sticking point for domestic and foreign policy um and as i mentioned last week biden wanted a big win on climate before heading to the g20 summit 
and he didn't really. Now he's there. What's going on? So, um, so the the first thing that that happened was uh, this this weekend. Uh, all of the G20 leaders met for a two-day climate-focused pre-conference in Rome um, before they head to Glasgow, which they are where they are now for a larger climate conference with the G20 leaders plus a whole bunch of other people. Um, and that happened in Rome. Um, so Biden got to meet the Pope, which was kind of exciting and fun to see. He had some. He just looked extremely happy, just like hanging out with the Pope. Um, so anyway, the, the I just. A side note that that the Biden got to meet the Pope. Um, so, the G twenty represents it represents nineteen countries and the EU, um, and the, all of those countries together account for eighty percent of the world's emissions, um, which is fairly significant. So, of course, basically nothing sub- substantive is going to happen with climate action um, unless these all of these G twenty leaders are involved. Um, and when they're not involved, nothing's going to happen if they're unable to make any large commitments nothing is actually going to happen. Um, so basically they, they announced um, a couple different provisions. The, the main thing was a major deal on coal plants and other corporate taxes. And they made a lot of pledges, but not a lot of commitments um, that like national interests and national legislatures can't get in the way of, like I talked about <laughs> like 10 minutes ago. Um, so, you know, they, they can make whatever decisions they want on the, the, the international stage. But of course, Biden doesn't have like unilateral power over the government because he's not a monarch <laughs> for probably good reason. Um, so of course, it, uh, any kind of like larger international decisions do have to be made through the Senate. And again, like a lot of those national interests are going to get in the way of any kind of agreements um, individual leaders do make um, on the international stage. So a lot of pledges, not a lot of commitments. Um, and a lot, basically, the, the couple articles I read, of course, said it was like very disappointing to activists that they did not get the kind of um, very clear decisions and very clear, um, you know, promises to to fulfill different climate um, provisions. Uh, Greta Thunberg has officially given up on politicians. Uh, there's a video of her basically saying, "No, no, no one's doing anything. No one's helping with anything. It just is what it is." Um, so. She is clearly very, very disappointed. A lot of different activists on the international stage are very disappointed. Um, so at this conference, again, it was all these G20 leaders, um, notably Russia and China. Um, their leaders did not show up in person and they basically like teleconferenced in. They zoomed into a meeting in, in 2021. Be still my heart. Um, but anyway, so he Biden basically like said he said during a speech that um russian climate quote basically didn't show up on climate matters which is a a little funny because again we were talking last week about all right joe biden's gonna show up to this climate summit with like not much to show for the fact that um like the the united states is doing anything for climate um but you know the the whole climate agenda is being held up by by one man in the Senate, which is neither here nor there. But it is pretty considerable that uh, neither of those leaders actually showed up in person. It kind of demonstrates that they really have less of a commitment to climate than even Joe Biden does. Um, and I think like visually, they, they they knew what they were doing and they did it on purpose, right? Um, you you don't you don't. It's it's like uh, David Perdue not showing up to debate John Ossoff. Like, he probably didn't know what he was doing. The leaders of Russia and China know what they're doing, and they know what they're doing symbolically when they decide not to um, show up for uh, a debate or a conference or anything like that. They're making a very specific... Um, they're making a very specific symbolic decision um, that kind of climate is not necessarily important for them. Um but they did show up at the at the larger summit that's happening right now. But again, they weren't there at that like pre-conference. They weren't there to kind of make those decisions together. And of course, you know, the United States, Russia and China of that 80 percent that the G20 is emitting Russia, China and America without their commitment to these different climate provisions, nothing is actually going to happen. Um, and that's 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 considerable. So the actual decision that they got through was a pledge to stop financing new unabated coal plants internationally by the end of the year. They didn't notably agree to stop the use of coal power in their own countries. And then the other 
the, the other major provision um, is that they are, quote, closer to reaching the goal of providing $100 billion a year um, to climate financing in developing countries. So basically to help uh, developing countries do renewable energy sources and other, other things like that. Um, the, the important thing there, of course, um, is that those developing countries, they're not the ones who are... Um, producing mass amount of emissions. They're really not. There's very few. There don't think there's any, obviously, developing countries in the G20. So they're not the ones producing all of those emissions, but they're the ones that are going to get hit the hardest by climate change. Um, and that, there's already been then proof of that. And of course, as if climate change wasn't an intersectional issue, of course it is. Um, of course, women, especially in those developing countries, are going to be the ones who are hit the hardest by climate change. So we've got all of these different issues of uh, uh, climate change affecting different groups all coming together. Um, so that is an important thing for all these like rich, large economies to be supporting developing countries with climate financing. Of course, I don't know, maybe they could put money into, put, I, I, I don't, I don't know whether or not the, the, these large economies should be putting money into climate financing for developing countries or whether they should be switching over their own energy system so that they are using renewable energy sources and then thus aren't producing that 80% of emissions that are going to um, affect those developing countries in the first place. So it's like telling somebody to like go build a dam so their town doesn't get flooded when like you could just not flood their town. I don't know about that one, but that is the decision that they've chosen chosen to make. Um, and Antonio Guterres of the UN, he's the UN Secretary General, seems highly disappointed by all of this. Uh, I think it really did not, you know, everyone said like, oh, it's a productive conference. We got a lot done. We talked about a lot. Um, but it was not, again, it wasn't necessarily um, what everybody what everybody wanted. There wasn't that kind of at least in terms of um, politicians, in terms of activists, they really did not get everything that they wanted. Um, they didn't get those like strong, concrete decisions. Also notable, um, I literally am just pulling up this tweet so I get it right, um, but there's a picture of all of the world leaders tossing a coin at the Trevi Fountain for good luck during the climate, fighting the climate emergency, which is so funny to me when they're the ones literally in charge and they're like, we're just going to like toss a coin into a fountain for good luck. It's like very deeply upsetting. And if I talk about it, this like talk about it more, I'm going to get really, really upset. So I'm just going <laughs> to just going to drop that there and then ignore it. Because if you think about the symbolism of it, if you think about any of it, it's just really, really upsetting. But we're going to move on. Um, so now all of the leaders are in Glasgow for the COP26 Climate Summit, which stands for Conference of Parties. Um, and so this is a, a larger summit with more countries. Um, and there's hope that they're actually going to get some real commitments. Um, but it's maybe not super likely. Um, and the, hopefully the summit is going to force some international cooperation on the Paris Accords and other things like that. But um, who knows what's actually going to come out of this. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's really going to be, again, the most effective because I don't know what at this point can force international cooperation. I really think that um, the uh, there's just some, people aren't interested in, in, in international cooperation anymore. I think that like nationalism is just a, is that too high of a high of a fervor right now. Um, for anybody to to want to cooperate with each other, I think like that that collective action just isn't encouraged anymore, which is upsetting, but kind of it is what it is. Um, and then the last thing I want to talk about climate is I should have talked about this last week, but I do want to talk about it now um, because I don't understand why nobody's been talking about this in mainstream media and not to sound like somebody on Twitter. Oh, my God. Why is nobody talking about this? Oh, my gosh. Um, but seriously, I don't see anyone talking about this. Um, there are. Um, there's been a, there's a group of five students, I think it's four students now, I'm actually not sure if they're still going, uh, because again, nobody is reporting on it, and the only time I've seen this is on Twitter. Um, they've been on a hunger strike outside the White House for 11 plus days. Um, one guy had to, one of the students had to stop because his doctor literally said, like, you're going to die if you continue to do this. Um, and basically they're striking until they get some kind of substantive climate action um, out of the federal government. And I just think that's really insane. I mean, it's a it's a huge 
I mean, a very considerable hunger strike. I mean, I guess if it was 50 people instead of five, it would be getting a little bit more media attention. But it begs the question, are we going to have to start sacrificing ourselves literally for climate action? I don't know. Um, And it's kind of astonishing that there hasn't been a lot of acknowledgement of this in the mainstream media. There hasn't been a lot of acknowledgement of it from um, various politicians. Um, I just think it's 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 pretty interesting. And there's this strike is really no joke. Um, and they were they, they were out there. I don't again, I don't know if they're out there still, but they were out there for 10 plus days. Um, they were in and out of a hospital. They're like on electrolytes, like all these different things. Um, but it just goes to show like, what do we need to do for substantive climate change? We've elected the right people. We've you know, fought tooth and nail for all these different things. Like what, what's, what's next? Like what's actually going to get people to start acting and is it self-sacrifice? I hope not, but like maybe it is. Um, but that's what I want to talk about with climate this week. Guess we'll probably talk about it again next week. Um, when we get kind of more of the results from the Glasgow conference, um, everything is a a lot of hurry up and wait in politics this week it's uh it's hard for anything substantial to come out and be and be finite but we're hoping that um things things become more um solidified in the days to come so with that i am going to go ahead and share Preston's analysis again. We're going to do it in a different way than I intended to do it, but hopefully it works. Um, so anyway, yes, this is my intern Preston, and he's going to take you through a little bit of the um, um, climate, or not the climate, excuse me, the, the a little bit more about um, Build Back Better in um, Congress. I'm just going to give me two seconds for me to set this up, and then we will... Give it a little. Good evening, listeners. My name is Preston Schiller. I'm a sophomore studying international affairs here at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. So today we're going to be talking about the Biden economic plan and more specifically his welfare package and what it means for America with current inflation. So right now, what's going on in the economy is the demand for goods and services is increasing compared to the where the supply of goods and services are in the economy. This causes inflation because supply and demand are not in balance. They're not at a point that is at a stable level. There is like this there's a mismatch and that and that mismatch that creates a shortage. So what's happening is people want to buy all this stuff. There's all this demand for stuff that people want and services and people want to spend the money, but the supply is not where it should be. So that's creating a shortage because the demand is high, but the supply is low. People want stuff. They can't get that stuff. People aren't working. The lack of people working is causing a lower supply. So the government has, wants to do something. They want to help, and it's very noble of them. But you have to remember, a general rule for government spending is that when government spending increases, that causes an increase in demand most of the time. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to have like a government policy that promotes supply, not demand. We want to make getting people back to work to be a priority because we want to achieve maximum economic growth as economic growth is the best indicator for a better quality of life. You have to remember, as the resources available to us that we use in producing goods and supplying services increase, so does our productivity. Remember, in order for our productivity to continue, we need the tools and resources at our disposal to be at least replenished at the same rate that they are being used at, which currently they are not. We need our economic plan to prioritize policies that will increase our standard of living. And a lot of times, policies just tend to push political agendas and don't really do anything that are really going to help the American people. In order to have, like, an economic plan that prioritizes an increased standard of living, we must increase investment by supplying incentives for people to invest. We have to do this by lowering corporate taxes as well as making various 
tax credits for making investments. There also could be much to be done in terms of increased incentives for households to save, such as making retirement earnings tax-free. Biden does do some of what is necessary. Unfortunately, he will raise corporate taxes, but there will be a clean energy tax credit as well as other incentives to spur environmentally friendly supply chains. Out of all the things that we can do to increase our productivity, it is our technical abilities and our technology that will best decide our quality of life. Any economic system must make constant improvements to equipment, organization, skills, knowledge, and the education of the workforce. Our quality of life rests on the resources we have at our disposal because of research and development that we have done. Repeatedly, history has proven that private firms cannot solely handle research and development at the levels that are needed for our society. If we are to have a high standard of living, our economic system must protect intellectual property. Our government must subsidize research and development as well as subsidize education. That is essential. We need those things if we are to have our productivity at levels that we need to maintain our quality of life. There's a lot to understand when it comes to the Biden welfare plan and the current situation. It would be in our interests to have a system that will encourage economic growth through productivity. The Biden administration is currently looking to expand the American welfare state by expanding the system of public cash benefits and rights to the provision of basic services that address human welfare. But many on the left are questioning, is it enough? While those in the center and on the right are questioning whether we can pay for it. As things stand right now, which look like the way things are going to be, as Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema appear that they have agreed and people on the left seem like they may be willing to take this. The reason why I'm hesitant is that there have been deals made in the past and things always fall through, so don't bet on anything until it finally gets to the president's desk. But... It looks like this is the deal that's happening. So it's going to be a welfare package between 1.85 and 1.75 million. That is contingent on whether the Senate parliamentarian decides if there will be a provision on immigration for a hundred million dollars. A large portion of the welfare package will consist of tax credits such as a one-year extension of enhanced childhood tax credits, a one-year extension of earned income tax credit for low-wage workers, expanded Affordable Care Act tax credits will be extended through 2025, as well as Affordable Care Act tax credits being open to non-Medicaid expansion states. There will also be further tax credits for environmentally friendly domestic manufacturing. Biden's welfare plan has made several large investments into stopping climate change, such as preparation for extreme weather and the establishment of a climate core. The Biden welfare system also addresses problems that have been brought to light following the census. The previous census that just took place in 2020 shows that population growth took a hit. We were way below replacement rate. Parts of the population have even declined in population. This is not good. This means that the workforce is going to be lopsided. Like, this is like, remember what happened to Japan like a long time ago? Like in the 80s? Like, that's not good. You do not want that happening here. You do not want to have a population that's inverted. It messes everything up. Also, Social Security. It's, it's, it's not good. You need to have more young people than old people. That's just kind of how it works. You just need to keep on growing. So, the Biden, like, welfare plan, like, what it does is it has 
things in there that help support the family structure. And it does that in, her, in hopes to encourage population growth so then it doesn't have to deal with any of the big problems that countries face when their population declines. So what the Biden welfare plan has is it has a section in it on child care, which includes universal pre-K for ages three through four, as well as a provision on family assistance, which will make sure that the raising of children will not cost more than 7% of a family's income, which that, that's very important. You want to make it as affordable as possible to raise children because that is very much an investment. It allows for there to be more workers later on in future generations. They also pay into Social Security, which will then allow older people to be supported. Like You need to have a growing population. Biden's welfare plan also seeks to make various investments into Medicare through provisions for hearing benefits, home care by making permanent improvements to Medicaid coverage for home care services, and public housing through the construction and improvement of one million housing units, immigration reform, and higher education through increased funding for Pell Grants, HBCUs, and higher education institutions serving Native Americans as well as our Hispanic population. Further equity investments will also be made in this welfare plan to disadvantaged farmers, Native communities, and maternal health. When analyzing this program that Biden put forward, you have to think about what do we value as a society and whether it accomplishes it. I'm not going to really tell you what to think on this. There are pros to it. There are cons to it. There are things that it's not doing that are that it should be. There are things that it is doing that it shouldn't be. There are also things that, are, that it is doing that it should be, and there are things that it's not doing that it shouldn't be. There is a little bit of both as there is with most bills. What you've got to figure out is whether it is something that you feel like it would be better for this country or not. That is your decision to make. It has been a pleasure speaking with you this evening. This has been Preston Schiller. All right. Thank you so much for that, Preston. Of course, it's here live. We would not be having those technical difficulties that we did have, but glad that we got to hear from him at all. Um, He's a lot nicer than me, that he is not going to uh, tell you what to believe one way or the other. Um, But you know me, I will tell you what to believe because... I'm, I'm allowed. I'm entitled. Um, the other thing, of course, if Preston were here, we would uh, get in a little bit of a fight about um, corporate tax rates. But next time he's here, I will make sure that he and I get in a conversation about that. But very happy that he was able to kind of provide that little bit of framework, especially like that economic um, background is really important to help understand um, everything that's going on right now in politics. But with that, time to get into our insane political stories of the week, which this week aren't as insane as kind of fun, but regardless. Um, it was Halloween week on the Hill, so we've got a couple fun things to talk about. Um, two is that, or one, is that they um, they had another bipartisan costume parade with dogs and um, different like representatives and staffers brought in their dogs dressed up, <laughs> and it was just really cute. And if you look at pictures, it was just nice to see. There's a my why one of my professors this morning in class put up on the board when we were walking in a picture of um, a representative's dog dressed as Nancy Paul Losey. And I just think that's fabulous. I love dog puns. I like dogs dressed up. And I think that it's fun when they're like walking through the Capitol Rotunda. I think it just it, it, it humanizes Congress a little bit in an important way. Um, and then the other kind of random thing is that Mitt Romney and Kristen Cinema kind of dress in a couple's costume, which is a little upsetting and kind of makes me very uncomfortable. Um, full disclosure, I have not seen the show Ted Lasso, so I really can't comment on like what their costumes are. But all I know is that there was pictures of them and they're like acting out a scene and then there was pictures of the actual scene. And it certainly looks like they were in a couple's costume, which is a lot. Certainly a lot to say, the very least. Um, it's, it's, so again, both of these things are like humanizing politicians. And like, in some ways, that's a good thing. In other ways, it's kind of horrifying because I don't want to humanize Mitt Romney. 
don't make me humanize Mitt Romney. He's just, he's someone I can have like a weird parasocial relationship with and just kind of, you know, whatever. Regardless, those are some fun Halloween things. I'll post some pictures of my favorite dogs um, up on my Instagram and Twitter when I post everything this week. Also, just in general, being in D.C. this weekend was so fun. I went on a walk on yesterday on Halloween, and there were so many dogs dressed in costumes just on the mall. And I just think that's great. I don't know. Maybe that's just like a city thing. Maybe it's just a D.C. thing. But I saw a dog dressed as a taco on my walk, and it just... It really brightened my day. Not necessarily political, but isn't everything in D.C. political? So-so. <laughs> um, and then the other interesting story that I want to talk about just briefly this week um, is that Manchin, I just I just think it's interesting that these kinds of meetings happen, but Manchin was at a closed-door meeting with reporters and, quote, business titans um, this past week, a couple days ago. I think it was like five or six days ago at this point. And on the invite, it said that the, the opening comments were on the record and everything else was off the off the record. So they had all these reporters and all these like business leaders in a room uh, with a couple politicians like talking about whatever they were talking about, all completely off the record. Very interesting and very, very apt for Halloween. Kind of spooky, scary. Um, but the fact that meetings like ha- like this happen in real life, I just think is kind of insane. Um, and I just think you must feel so powerful being in that room. Um, I just think like you, you, you must you must really feel like important and powerful to be like I know what's going on in this room and nobody else does. Um, then the one important takeaway from that meeting, I don't, I'm not sure if this was in the on the record or the off the record comments, um, but Manchin said that he was, quote, out of step with his party and, quote, doesn't know where he belongs. And that made me believe that he is going to join Andrew Yang's forward party, which I very pointedly have been avoiding talking about, um, because while it is an insane political story of the week, I don't want to give Andrew Yang any (laughs) any attention at all, even though I'm giving him this attention now. But it would be hilarious it would be such a fever dream if um, Joe Manchin dropped out of the Democratic Party to join the forward party and then he just like caucused with the Democrats. I think that'd be fabulous. Um, but anyway, I just think it's fun that meetings like that happen. I think it's interesting that Manchin said he was out of step with his party, at least acknowledging the fact that he was out of step with his party. Um, and he doesn't necessarily know um, where he belongs in terms of his um, political ideology and Let's just hope that we don't accidentally push him out of the Democratic Party because a very marginal 50-50 with like those two intense swing votes is much better than a um, Senate where we are in the minority again. I say are because, hey, guess what? I'm a Democrat. I don't know if you knew this about me, but I am a Democrat. Um, But anyway, that's all I want to talk about this week. Another very eventful week in politics, and I'm sure it will be, you know, eventful moving forward um, as we continue to talk about climate, continue to talk about Build Back Better, um, as we kind of get more information on a whole slew of different legislative things. Um, and of course, election results that are, that'll be coming out in the next couple days in Virginia, New Jersey, all across our lovely country. Um, but with that, have a wonderful week. It's been, it's been great talking to you. Vote, please vote. Um, and if you, you know, if you don't vote for me, vote for, you know, the the future of our country. Anyway, um, have a lovely week and I will talk to you guys later. Bye.